once again, and thank you for uh, allowing me to come and share with you. What I hope to do in the next 30 minutes is to share with you something called the Law of Love. And I want to link two very key elements in the history of our salvation, from the Garden of Eden to the Garden of Calvary, and how this Law of Love is played out. As we approach Valentine's Day, the chocolates, the Hallmark cards, the warm, sincere sentiments of affection and love for one another are starting to boil up in our, in our culture. But I'm here to tell you that it has nothing to do with love. For love is a complete and total gift of self. It's not about how warm that love makes you feel. It's about your, your willingness to give yourself completely and entirely to someone else, holding nothing back. This is the law of love. We'll see it played out in the Garden of Eden. We'll see it come to its perfection in the Garden of Calvary. I want to do this by asking the question, why? Why the cross? I mean, if he's a God, if he's all-knowing, all-loving, all-powerful, why did he have to take upon flesh, condescend himself from heaven to take on the flesh, to live amongst man, the lowest of society, born in a manger, suffering for, for mankind? Why? Flesh torn from his bones, nailed to a tree, derided, scoffed at, to drown in his bodily fluids for hours, gasping for breath, pulling himself up on those nails to declare, tell to lest I. It is consumed. It is finished. Giving his soul up to God. To on the third day to rise again, only to ascend and sit at the right hand of God forever. Why? That makes no sense in our modern culture. I mean, if he's God, why doesn't he snap his fingers, redeem you? Why the cross? The answer is found in love. For God is love, 1 John chapter 4, verse 8. The Catechism of the Catholic Church says in paragraph 458, quote, The Word became flesh, so that thus we might know God's love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world, so that we might live through him. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Now, to look at this law of love, this complete gift of self, and how we can come to understand why the cross, why the death, why the resurrection, why the ascension. We start in the beginning with creation, with Adam and Eve, and the Garden of Eden. If I could have written Genesis chapter 2, I would have plucked out a few verses from St. John's Gospel and placed them so tenderly right there in front of Genesis chapter 2. I would have said, quote, this is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no man than this, that a man lay down his life for his friends. That's from John chapter 15, verses 12 and 13. That's how I would have started the account of how man was formed, how his wife was bana, the Hebrew word built, and how they entered into covenant communion with not only each other, but with God and all of creation. It is through the lens 
ends of John's Gospel that we can come to deeper understanding of the book of Genesis, especially in those first three chapters. But the law of love is complete gift of self. Now, to further understand this, to, to look and dive deep into the Garden of Eden and what transpired there, to understand the cross, we have to start with a topic that might be uh, akin to your studies. Covenants versus contracts. You see, modern society will tell us that they're equal. This is why we divorce so frequently. Because it's not a covenant, it's a contract. I mean, I hired my plumber. I didn't get what I asked for. He didn't, he didn't please me the way that he said he would. So I will break that contract with him. We treat marriage the same way. Dr. Scott Hahn says in A Father Who Keeps His Promises, contract is to covenant as prostitution is to marriage. A contract is the exchange of goods and services for the sake of economy. I agree to hire this plumber for certain services. I agree to pay him a reasonable wage. We write it down, we agree to it, we sign it. A contract is completely different. A contract is the exchange of persons for the sake of, of building family bonds. I give to you my complete self, and I receive from you your complete self. The two become one. And witnessing this covenant bond is God himself. And in his righteousness, in the hesed, which is God, he is bound by himself to ensure either the blessings or the curses of that covenant relationship. So if you keep the covenant, you live and abide in God's grace and you receive his blessing. If you break the covenant, then you receive the curses, not because he hates you, but because he loves you and he's bound by who he is to ensure that the covenant is kept which is why we see so many things going on in the wilderness in the Old Testament with the people of Israel. So covenant versus contract, completely different ideas. The very Hebrew word shava, which is used in Genesis, literally means to seven oneself. This is the word for covenant. We see it imprinted on creation itself. For God created the world and all of the universe in six days, and on the seventh day he rested. We don't mean this literally. It wasn't the how that was communicated in Genesis 1. It was the why. It was the who. For how, you can read Job. It's much more detailed. It's why and it's who. Why did God create this six-fold creation scheme only to rest in the seventh day? Because you're resting in him. In Genesis chapter 1, God is referred to as Elohim, the creator. What God does in Genesis chapter 2, he's referred to as Yahweh, Father, who God is. Because after six days of creation, he covenants with all of creation. And we see this come to a crowning glory through the marriage feast of Adam and the woman. The man and the woman unite on the seventh day in the covenant relationship. And God has created a family bond with this person, with these people. He is now Father. He is not the creator. He is now father to them. So it's a completely different understanding of how society will view covenants versus contracts. So Adam and Eve are now in a covenant relationship in the garden. The garden is a sanctuary. If we were to look at the tabernacle in the wilderness or the temple in Jerusalem, we would see certain key elements being described to us. These elements of trees, 
fruits, animals, gold, silver, precious jewels, pools and rivers of water. These elements are clues. Why? Because all of these elements exist in the Garden of Eden with Adam and Eve. The people in the wilderness with the tabernacle, the priests in the temple in Jerusalem under King Solomon understood themselves to be recreating the Garden of Eden. They understood, the priest understood himself to be a new Adam. For Adam was a priest, he was a prophet and a king. Genesis 1.26, he's given dominion over all of the animals, all of creation. He is now a kingly figure. In Genesis chapter 2, God tells him that he is to keep and protect the garden. These very unique words, in Hebrew, they're abudah and shamar. They're used elsewhere in the Old Testament to describe how the priests, the Levitical priesthood, will keep and protect the sanctuary, to keep and protect the temple. These are priestly duties. Adam is the first priest of all of creation. He is ministering and protecting the garden sanctuary. And from his side, God takes a rib. And Banaz, woman, builds her. The language is specific. The language is referring to what we'll see later in the building of the ark, or the building of the temple, building of the tabernacle. It's holy, because that's where God's presence dwells. Woman is shown to be holy, to be his perfect helpmate, to be his perfect equal. This is unprecedented in history, that at the first, at the beginning of creation, we see that God says, let us make man, male and female, let us make them. And so they enter into this covenant union, this bond, and they become one flesh. The very last verse of Genesis chapter 2 says that Adam and Eve were both naked and unashamed, and the two became one flesh. This is the most intimate moment between a man and his wife, the one flesh union. And this, the very next line, Satan comes on the scene in the form of a serpent. Now, most of us in our little minds start to think of little garden snakes. But the Hebrew word used here is nahash. Nahash does mean serpent, mostly venomous uh, reptile, but it's used elsewhere, such as Isaiah, to refer to Leviathan, or in Job as the great sea monster. But more specifically than that, in Revelation chapter 12, we see how the dragon is referred to as the ancient serpent. Revelation 12 is a reenacting of the garden scene. And so the apostles, St. John, understood the serpent, the Nahash, in Genesis chapter 3, wasn't a snake that hangs from a tree with a little apple hanging out of its mouth. This was a very big monster. A physical threat could kill you. A beast could tear you to pieces. This was a threat, a bully in some ways. And so the most intimate moment between Adam and Eve, when they are one flesh union, comes this great monster. Now, what is supposed to happen? The law of love, written on their hearts. For Adam was to keep and protect the sanctuary and the woman who he was given as his equal. He was supposed to stand in the gap between the beast and them and say, no, you can kill me, but you will not get past me without a fight. Did Adam do that? He does not utter a single word in a garden but the tree of life. 
the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Why is it there? What's its purpose? How do you know that you have faith? Is it because it's been tested? Have you been tested and found wanting? Or have you been tested and got through on faith? A muscle is not, it's not conditioned, it's not built up, it's not strengthened unless it's worked. Your faith is the same way. Like a muscle, it has to be worked, it has to be exercised. God gave Adam and Eve perfect free will. The only way that they could have a guarantee of the free will, because God will not create automatons. He will not force you to love him back. He gives you free will. They were born in immaculate grace. They abided in God's love. They walked with God in the garden. And to ensure their free will, God places the tree of the knowledge of good and evil in the midst of them and says, you may not eat of it. You can eat of every other tree, but not that one. This is the test. It's the guarantee that man is free to choose to love God or not. The dragon says, surely when you eat it, you will not die. Interesting, because when God said it, the previous chapter, he said, you can eat of all the fruits of all these trees except for this one. You cannot eat it because on the day you eat it, you will surely die the death. It's repeated in the Hebrew. God says, die the death. Satan says, die. Why the difference? Only a few verses in between. What gives? When God said it, he's referring to your soul. When Satan says it, he's referring to your flesh. He's giving Adam and Eve a choice, and he's speaking plurally in the Hebrew to both of them. He says, choose your flesh or your soul. If you choose to keep your soul, I will kill you. If you choose to keep your flesh, then I'll let you live, but your soul dies. That's the test. Adam, whose job as the high priest, as the man given to keep and protect this sanctuary, should have given himself over to die for his spouse and for the sanctuary. Like the Levites in the wilderness wielding swords, that's what he was called to do. Call out to the one who could have saved him, and yet he says nothing, not a single word. He allows Eve to fend for herself. What kind of a man would allow his wife to fend off a bully all alone? He should have gone to his death. That's the law of love. Because of time, I'm going to skip forward, but there are many other garden scenes throughout the Old Testament that we can reference to show how one after another, the new Adams, Noah, Abraham, Moses, King David, Solomon, all in their own turn fell from grace. All new Adams, all walking with God, all new covenants, all in the garden. All fall one at a time. But let's move forward to another garden, a new garden. This garden, which we read about in Matthew chapter 26 and elsewhere, has a new Adam, as St. Paul likes to call him, our Lord. He's a new Moses. He's a new son of David. His mother is a new Eve because Eve was the queen of all the living and her seed would untie or would bring forth the, the Messiah that would redeem all mankind. So Mary is depicted as the new Eve, the new Gibirah, which is the Hebrew tradition for the queen mother like Bathsheba and Solomon. She brings forth this male child and through her and her son comes forth the redemption 
And so this new Adam finds himself after he spends in the upper room bringing forth a new Passover, bringing down new heavenly bread for the people in the wilderness. That's you and me on a journey to the promised land. That's heaven. Crossing the waters of the Jordan through baptism, entering into the promised land of heaven with God. We have to have food for the journey, just like the Israelites did in Exodus. He brings about the new man, only unlike the heavenly bread that fell from the sky in Exodus. This is the bread of himself, of God. It truly gives you life. Unlike the old bread in John chapter 6, as Jesus says, who they ate and they died, this bread will give you life. Now this new Adam finds himself in the Garden of Gethsemane. Only unlike the first Adam, this Adam cries out. Unlike the first Adam who said nothing and allowed his woman, his wife, to say everything to the bully, this Adam Given the same test, he cries out. Hebrews chapter 5, verse 7 following say, quote, In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death, and he was heard for his godly fear. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered, and being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him, being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. Notice that when Adam and Eve fall from grace, God encounters them in the garden, sort of a, a, a foreshadowing to the confessional. He calls man out of the bushes. He hears the confession. He gives the penances out. Adam is forced out into the wilderness. He is forced to work to the thorns he goes, working in the ground with the blood falling from his brow onto the ground, trying to bring forth fruit from this land. Eve bears life in turmoil now. And Satan has to crawl and eat the dust, and his head will be crushed by the seed of this woman. That's the penance. As soon as the penance is given out, what do we see? God's mercy. He loves them. He clothes them, hides their nakedness. Fast forward to the Garden of Gethsemane, and our Lord is crying out with loud cries because he's weak. No, I argue he's strong because he's doing what the first Adam was expected to do all along. Cry out to the one who can save you. It's not that God didn't know what Adam and Eve were going through. He obviously knew. It's that he was allowing the test to ensure their free will. Adam was a coward. In fact, when he's confronted by God, what does he say? Does he say, you know, I wanted to say something, but I was a little embarrassed, and uh, instead I just hung back. No, he doesn't say that at all. Instead he says, you know, God, it's that, uh, it's that woman that you gave her. You gave her to me. All of my problems are your fault, God. If you hadn't given her to me and let me hang out with the bears and the critters, we'd have been just fine. He doesn't see, he's a coward. He has zero integrity. What does the woman say? I was beguiled and I ate. She takes responsibility. The man doesn't do this. I mean, brothers in Christ, let me tell you, if you ever find yourself in a vocation of marriage, you're going to feel this come up over and over again. The inclination of a man towards cowardice. 
heroism doesn't mean I'm going to go to my death. It means I'm obedient and I love my life so much that I'm willing to give it away as a complete gift to my spouse. And I'm willing to die, not because I want to, but because that's what love calls for. Not Hallmark cards and candies. It requires complete gift of self. And so our Lord cries out to the one who can save him in a garden with blood stripping from his forehead, falling to the earth, because it will be the, the wheat, the grain of wheat that falls into the ground and dies that brings forth the fruit. What is the fruit of wheat? Bread. What is the bread that he gives? Life for the whole world in the Eucharist. He is reenacting. He's bringing back Adam. Just like Adam is cast to the wilderness with the thorns and the targums, which is the rabbinical tradition of the oral interpretation of the scrolls being read in, in the synagogue. In the Targums of Genesis chapter 3, when Adam and Eve noticed that they're naked, it says that they were stripped of the purple robe in which they were created. Our Lord goes, is stripped naked. He is wrapped in a purple cloth, a robe. He is given a crown of thorns and he is beaten and flogged and his skin is ripped from his bones and he's mocked as the king of the Jews. Like Adam, who was king, how much more is Jesus king? He's taking on the curses of the covenant that Adam broke. And he goes to another garden. This time it's the Garden of Calvary. John chapter 19, verse 41 is very specific. Calvary was a garden. John is very clear because he's trying to send you a message. Throughout all of John's gospel, you see him interpreting Genesis 1, 2, and 3 over and over again the eyes of Christ. And so now we see the fruit of the womb of his mother Mary, the new Adam, nailed to a tree. Almost, not almost, but many of the early fathers of the church referred to the cross as the tree of life, which is a perfection, not only of the tree of life in the garden, which Adam and Eve were forbidden to eat after the fall. A cherubim with a sword was placed in the, in the east gate, preventing them from coming. What does Jesus do in the Garden of Gethsemane but tell St. Peter to drop your sword in John 18? Why? Because he's opening the way to the tree of life. Adam hides in the bush when he's confronted by God after the fall. Jesus, when he's confronted by the whore in the middle of the night, does he hide in a bush? No, he goes out to confront them. Who are you looking for? Jesus of Nazareth. Ego a me, he says, which is I am. It's a, it's a proclamation of his divinity. Now he's hung on the tree of life, the fruit of the womb, the bread for the life of the world. When we consume his flesh and drink his blood, we will have life and he will raise us up. That was the promise he gave. That is him hanging on the cross because the law of love dictates the complete gift of self. If Adam broke the covenant, the new Adam will bring it back. Through Eve, the mother of all the living, we see death enter the world. Through the new mother, Mary, we see life. Eve gave Adam the fruit. The new Eve, Mary, gives the new Adam flesh. It's a complete photonegative, if you will. Here's the conclusion. Covenant equals sacrificial love. Covenants are not contracts. If you love me, you will obey me, Jesus says. Jesus was obedient. 
His obedience was played out over and over again, not only through the Gospels, but even St. Paul very clearly tells us and reiterates how obedient he was. Why? Because the first Adam was not obedient. In Philippians 2.8, we are told that he was obedient unto death, death on a cross, and this was like horrific imagery because they were used to in the first century seeing hundreds of people crucified. And you're telling me that the true Messiah is one of them? The image is horrific to them, to us. It's lost its value. It's lost its flavor almost. We have to understand it again through the eyes of the church, through the sacraments and the law of love. One last point. Understanding the complete gift of self and the law of love started in Eden, ends at the Garden of Calvary. Do you think you're called to happiness in this world? I mean, the world will tell you that the reason why you're becoming a lawyer is so you can afford the 5,000 square foot home, the Porsche, the mahogany desk, the law firm with your name on it. Is that happiness? No. You're not called to happiness. God does not call you to happiness. Sounds weird, doesn't it? I grant that. What does God call you to? Holiness. He says it over and over again. Hebrews 12, 14. Strive for peace with all men and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Revelation 21, 27 says that nothing unclean can enter heaven. Matthew 5, 48. says be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Can you attain happiness in this world? Absolutely. But just not the way the world sees it. Am I saying somehow that lawyers are bad? Not at all. You're needed. But serve God first. Serve yourself second. Seek holiness in everything you do. And you will be the best lawyer you can imagine. You will be more happy and joy-filled because you understand the law of love is a complete gift of yourself. You are called to be a priest, the domestic priest, offering up yourself. If not for your covenant bride and your husband, then for society. It's the law of love. And it's why God died on the 